You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. There's so much reward from investing in silver. Uh, as I said, you know, I talked about the gains that uh, silver produced in the 1970s. Uh, 3,700% in the metal itself is a 37 times return. You know, it's it, if if you can get that in the metal in in a in a, a massive silver bowl, it's certainly not unrealistic to ex- expect ten to fifty, and sometimes even in some special cases, a hundred times or more returns in some silver stocks. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Well, my guest today believes that silver could go to three hundred dollars per ounce, and he's the author of a new book. The Great Silver Bowl, Crush Inflation and Profit as the Dollar Dies. I'm speaking to Peter Krauth of SilverStockInvestor.com. Peter, welcome onto the show for the first time. Bill, thanks so much for having me. I, uh, I'm really glad to be here. You've referred to silver as the trade of the decade. Could you kind of give us a thumbnail overview of why you believe this? Um, you know, you uh, you mentioned it with the um, with that subtitle, how, uh, you know, silver crushes inflation. That's so true. In the 1970s, silver was up uh, 3,700 uh, percent, easily doubling gold's return of about 1,400 percent, which is nothing to, uh, you know, to uh, turn your, you know, to to uh, to discount. That's for sure. But um you know, being the trade of the decade, I certainly believe that because I also feel that, uh, uh, and this certainly goes hand in hand, that inflation is is going to be the defining feature of uh, of this decade, um, very much like the '70s, but uh, I think even at um, you know, an even uh, more pronounced uh, in a more, more pronounced way. In fact, in your newly published book, uh, The Great Silver Bowl, you write about because you gave me a, a sneak peek, uh, peek at the book, I should say, for listeners. Uh, silver is the irreplaceable metal. Break that down for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, silver is uh, some of a lot of your listeners may know this, but silver is both a monetary metal and an industrial metal. In fact, it was part of money in the U.S. and in Canada until uh, the 1960s um, when it was completely removed from our coinage. And so, you know, uh, the world's had a long history with silver as as money. Uh, but in the last sort of uh, five, especially I'd say five to six decades or so, silver has really become an important industrial metal to the point where half of its consumption, half of its use every year, more than half goes to uh, industrial applications. And even 10% of all silver goes to um, solar power for solar panels. So, you know, with the, the green um, revolution, the green energy revolution, silver is becoming really more important than ever. And so, you know, um, in electronics, in medicine, um, in green energy, uh, automotive, as I say, like um, and and things like the um, the the solar power uh, aspect of demand, all of these certainly are are pushing uh, requirements of of silver, and uh, that all contributes to it being irreplaceable in my mind. No doubt about that. On the silver sector supply side with mine output, could you kind of delve a little more into the supply side and why that makes you bullish on the metal? Absolutely. So silver is has what I call, and in the book, I, I, I say silver has a quirky supply profile. And, um, you know, just to keep kind of simpler numbers, 
About 25% of silver actually comes from what we call primary silver mines, mines that mostly mine silver. And about 75% of silver comes from mines that produce other metals as their primary uh, metals. Uh, and so 75% of silver comes from mines that produce gold, that produce copper, that produce lead and zinc. And so the miners that produce silver as a byproduct in, in these cases, um, they regard silver as a nice bonus, not as their focus. And so even if silver prices go up and go up substantially, they they have, I'm going to say, you know, a limited incentive to try and produce more silver. And even those that, uh, you know, perhaps can make adjustments and 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 uh, to their to their systems and to their um, methods to try and produce more silver. Uh, they and many times, if silver goes up and stays up substantially, that's what they'll wait for to see a higher silver price and a higher sustained silver price, sometimes for as much as a couple of years, to try to make adjustments that they can they can actually justify. Um, those adjustments might, in fact, be things doing things like mining lower grade ore, rather than taking advantage, in, in, in a sense, that's taking advantage of the higher silver price. Because it's more profitable, they'll go for lower grades uh, ore that, as I say, becomes more profitable, and they may actually turn out less silver than previously, exacerbating the high prices in silver. So it, it really may be, you know, sort of counterintuitive in that way. But these are really some of the, the very particular things about how, you know, silver supply is very inelastic to the silver price. So it's not like your typical economics 101, where if you have the price of something goes up, manufacturers will produce more of it. Silver really does not act that way. And so um, it can, as I say, can exacerbate and, and lead to even higher silver prices. Uh, silver performs well in an inflationary environment, as, as your book teaches. Uh, we are in that environment right now with real inflation, at least 15% here in the States. I'm sure it's probably something similar uh, up where you are in Canada. But uh, if there's a recession, because there seems to be economic indicators that are flashing that we could be headed into a reflection and, and re recession, and if we have a stagflationary environment, does that worry you at all? Because silver does uh, sometimes fall during a recession. Could put could that put a damper on the bull case? I mean, uh, I my my answer would be yes in a temporary way. Um, yes, because obviously it's. It's industrial applications. You would naturally uh, expect that the, that the demand for silver could fall off if uh, the economy slows. Um, but I look back to our best sort of analog is the 1970s, and I do talk about this in the book. Uh, how it, you know, if you if you look at what took place in the 70s. The inflation um, that it was not sort of uh, rising and and at up to a sort of a sustained high level. What happened was it would rise, fall somewhat, not to the previous low, then rise again, fall again, not again to the previous low. So we had three large inflationary waves in the 1970s, and these were you know in large part caused by central banks that would react to the inflation, um, they saw inflation, would raise rates, they would back off uh, as they saw the economy sort of start to struggle again. Um, and that would allow the economy to rise again, the inflation would kick back in, 
they'd raise rates again. Um, that would slow things down again. But each time the, 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 the wave was a higher wave. And, you know, if we, if we talk a little bit about the economics of the 1970s, there's something very important to point out. And, and I certainly do this in the book, um, how in the 1970s, uh, a really interesting comparison is that back then, the, uh, the debt to G- GDP in the US was 35%. So that meant, um, you know, much, much more manageable, uh, much lower debt levels allowed the central bank to raise rates because the debt was manageable even at higher rates. Today, debt to GDP is 130%. So it's four, almost four times what it was in the 1970s. Um, this is what I call the Fed's dilemma. The, the Fed knows it should raise rates because of inflation, but in a practical sense, it can't. It knows the government's own debt is is huge at about thirty trillion dollars. Um, having to um, you know pay interest on on that kind of debt at higher interest rates is becomes unmanageable very quickly, and it also crushes many sectors, things like housing, which is very important, and all the the you know periphery and, and related jobs. And so um, yeah, in that sense, I'm less worried because I feel that. Uh, the Fed has and, and other central banks have much less wiggle room in terms of raising rates. And to me, that means that inflation is that much more likely to get out of hand. And that's why, you know, before we started uh, the call, we chatted a little bit and um, I said, I saw it as a defining feature of um, this decade. Well, I, I, I certainly see that because, because of what I just explained about how I see inflation, um, you know, rising and potentially in, to some extent becoming uh, out of control. The Feds uh, and other central banks' uh, hands are really, really tied uh, when it comes to this. On the demand side, uh, what are the investment inflows that you're observing into silver right now? So, um, you know, uh, there, as I said, industrial accounts for more than half. It's very interesting to, to look at what's happened on the investment side, because I think that at the margin, it's the investment demand for silver that's going to make the big difference and really push silver prices dramatically higher. Um, in 2020, uh, there was incredible demand from silver ETFs that was something like 330 uh, million ounces. Um, and then I believe last year it had uh, it was still substantial, but it was uh, closer to, I think, about 150 million ounces. That's likely to be lower again this year. But there's something to, 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 to remember about this. And it kind of it's interesting how this relates to how inflation uh, works. Let's just look at that for a second. So, you know, people will say, OK, well, inflation has risen a lot. And if it slows, well, things are not so bad. But we have to remember that they are still bad because we've that has led to higher prices and higher sustained prices unless you get deflation the inflation has caused higher prices that are now kind of baked in and so what we've seen with the demand side for silver for 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 uh, especially from ETFs but certainly for for physical um silver as well but from the ETFs specifically is that um as the holdings in ETFs build, it's very interesting to see that even if the silver price falls and can fall dramatically sometimes, the holdings in silver ETFs, they barely budge. And that's something that I've I've coined um, 
silver is sticky money. And we've seen that, and that's going back at least a decade. In fact, it goes back to the inception of the first silver ETF, um, the SLV, um, sorry, the S, um, what's the, uh, the SIL, I'm sorry about that. The SIL, which was the original silver ETF back in 2006, that um, the holdings have grown uh, dramatically and hardly ever drop. And so all it means is that as people buy into silver ETFs, they become uh, long-term holders. And so it, in a sense, it's like this silver uh, is, is quasi permanently taken off the market. And so it drains the supply uh, in a very steady way. Interesting. So when it comes to putting together a silver portfolio, a lot of my listeners invest in the equities. They're not just, uh, if you don't own it in your physical hands, it's not yours. That We do have that in terms of our listenership, but a lot of people like myself like to dabble in the equities. So how do you put together a silver mining stock portfolio? So, um, you know, in the book, I go into detail uh, about that, and I and I talk about my ideal silver portfolio. It's my blueprint for for an ideal silver portfolio. And um, for me, it's uh, you have a uh, um, you have for certain you certainly have an allocation to physical silver, but then you also have uh, an important allocation to um, the the larger uh, silver producers. And uh, I would even say, you know, I would include silver minor ETFs together with large producers and royalty companies. These are sort of the the, the um, almost buy it and forget it kind of silver stocks. And then from there, you've got uh, the, I would say about 20% goes to, you can go to the um, developers and growing producers, the, the mid-sized. And then another 20% can go to the um, junior uh, explorers. And sometimes you have, you know, um, juniors that are, that are already in the developing or producing stage, but are still a smaller market cap. And so I also say that you need to spread it around. Um, one of the, um, uh, I go into chapter 53 is the five secrets to managing risk. And one of the big ones is position sizing. And I uh, suggest that uh, investors should not go beyond a certain allocation of their overall silver allocation to any one silver stock, especially in the juniors. Uh, you really want to spread it around. You want to hold, I'm going to say in silver, at least sort of five juniors, ideally even up to maybe eight or 10, um, just to, to, uh, to lessen your risk. Are you bullish on the whole commodity complex in general too, Peter? And if so, what percentage are you in silver and in other commodities, if you don't mind? So, so yes, I certainly am. Um, I, I believe that uh, we've, we've started a, a new commodities uh, uh, super cycle. I think that uh, uh, this was due to come. I think that the pandemic and the stimulus that came from the pandemic just sort of uh, accelerated and kicked it into high gear. In terms of allocation, I'm gonna say that I'm roughly probably say 30 to 40% silver, um, another maybe uh, 20 to 30% gold, and then the balance uh, is spread across commodities, about 40% in, in commodities, things like uh, energy, uh, uranium, um, other metals, things like uh, platinum and uh, palladium, and uh, even some of the uh, even some of the agricultural uh, commodities and uh, fertilizer plays that sort of thing. 
for new mining speculators, there's so many risks that they have to learn and experience, but specifically with the silver stocks, are there any unique characteristics of silvers or risks associated with it that you could lift up for my listeners, please? Most definitely. I would say that the this probably the single most uh, defining factor of silver and silver investments is the volatility. And uh, so, you know, silver is, if you just look at the annual supply of silver and the value of that, that's about 10% of gold. And gold is only about 1% of the world's uh, investment holdings. So that tells you that silver is really a very small market. It does not take a lot of buying to move the silver market. Um, And so, yes, it's uh, inherently very volatile, more so, of course, on the junior side. And so, you know, Again, I, I do go into ways that people can manage risk. One is position, position sizing. I say that when you buy into a silver investment, to buy into it in tranches, uh, split that up into two or three purchases to, again, lessen your risk. Um, but I think that uh, the volatility is an advantage that uh, investors have, especially sort of smaller retail investors. You know, we're not uh, we're not bound like uh, money managers are. They have larger amounts that they have to move in and out of stocks. They have to maintain a certain amount of liquidity. Um, they have to have they have to buy into stocks that have that are listed on specific exchanges, um, and uh, they have to react to uh, liquidations when uh, clients come back and say, you know, I, I you know I, I want to liquidate some of my holdings in your fund. Um, we can be a lot more patient as uh, individual investors, and we can take advantage of you know there are things as you probably know and your listeners probably know there's things like uh, seasonality, especially in uh, North America. You know, um, around the world, depending on where the the, the silver um, the silver companies are, silver pro- uh, properties are. But uh, there's the there are the summer doldrums where um, things die down and get quiet in the summer. So uh, silver stocks tend to have a weaker uh, a weaker time at that that period of the year. Uh, then there's tax loss selling season, which is uh, sort of late December and uh, where people will lock in uh, losses to um, be able to uh, write those off against gains uh, for the year for their taxes. Um, these are kinds of things that I, I talk about in the book and that people can certainly take advantage as uh, individual investors. Look for, wait for periods of weakness, take advantage of that, uh, look for mispricings. Um, you know, sometimes uh, a stock, for example, will have great results, but other things are happening, um, you know, worldwide news-wise that will distract from that and it won't get fairly priced. And so they can, as I say, they can take advantage of that. And if they they feel or they see that the, the stock did not jump uh, the way it ought to have jumped, or if it fell and it uh, was oversold, um, they could take advantage and buy. If it's, if the stock didn't jump as much as it, they thought it should have realistically, they can again buy. And these things go through cycles. So silver and silver stocks will get overpriced, uh, overbought at period at certain periods. And I, in my service, I certainly tell people when I feel that it's it's time to you know if they feel that. Um, 
they have uh, you know some some uh, decent gains in a in a particular holding, it's time to take profits. That's that's certainly wise as this uh, bull progresses and matures. So there are you know again we'll go back to that. There's volatility. There's uh, investors should take advantage of that volatility. They shouldn't let it. Uh, scare them away from silver, they should make it work for them. And they have to prepare themselves mentally going into a silver stock because it could be a roller coaster ride on the way to a three to 10 bagger. Exactly. It certainly can, uh, but that's the reward. And and you you can certainly manage and mitigate that risk, as I say, through um, position sizing, not having too much in a specific company, um, by taking profits, uh, by buying in in, in tranches. Um, yeah, I, there are certainly ways to do that. And these are all things that I talk about in the book. Um, people uh, will get to see, uh, you know, the ways that... Um, they can manage all of that. And there's so much reward from investing in silver. Uh, as I said, you know, I talked about the gains that uh, silver produced in the 1970s. Uh, 3,700% in the metal itself is a 37 times return. You know, it's it, if, if you can get that in the metal in, in, a, in a, a massive silver bowl, it's certainly not unrealistic to e- expect 10 to 50, and sometimes even in some special cases, 100 times or more returns in some silver stocks. I mean, we've, we've seen that recently with uh, some gold stocks that, um, you know, have gone from discovery to, to massive uh, deposits that have been proven out. And so, um, and, and that's very, very early in a bull market. So, uh, you know, the potential really is huge and uh, it's, it's not something to be discounted. It's, I really feel like uh, given the opportunity and and the the economic outlook, people really need to have some exposure to silver, even if it's a smallish exposure. The the upside is just so big for uh, you know sm- small uh, a small um, allocation to to this space. Yeah, I've been encouraging friends who've come to me, which by the way, I'm going to buy about five books uh, uh, and just pass it out to people that have been asking me about silver so they can understand <laughs> the historical thesis that you've laid out really well in this book. But I've just been telling them to buy junk silver and sure. to buy Buffalo rounds. Don't go with the premiums, the 50% ridiculous premiums of the American Eagles. Buy something highly recognizable by others. If you need it in a bartering situation, it'll preserve your value because it is silver if it was ever tested. So that's part of my strategies. And then if they're willing to put in the work, I say, listen to my show or listen to someone like you, silverstockinvestor.com. But if they're not, I say, just buy SLIJ, buy PSLV. If you believe in the in the thesis of silver going up, don't come back to me if silver doesn't go up. You got to <laughs> convince yourself. That's right. I mean, uh, we're on the same wavelength because I talk about the same things in the book. I tell people they don't have to, you know, um, go as far as investing in juniors. Uh, some people simply don't have the time or sufficient interest, and and that's okay too. But don't ignore the the massive opportunity of silver itself, both from the physical and even from the much lower risk ETFs, uh, mining ETFs, and um, and larger producers and royalty companies. And you can, you know. Uh, uh, one example I give in the book is Pan American Silver that I believe it was from 2001 to 2008 produced a 16 times return. That's a seven year time frame in uh, one of the absolute largest silver mining companies, uh, public silver mining companies that uh, you can invest in. And so it dropped by 50 percent twice, if I recall. 
during that that's period right. of time, it dropped by 50% twice. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, uh, the, it certainly takes uh, some conviction, um, you know, to uh, to hold these companies um, and to realize and to maybe assess where we are in the uh, in the bull market. But it's very rewarding. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's it's definitely something uh, investors and I and I believe Every investor, even if we're talking about someone who's considerably older, um, really wants to take the the least risk possible. I'll say, go out and buy some silver coins, some some um, you know from from your uh, from your uh, the mint of your your own country, or you know something that's easily traded or easily recognized and bought wherever you live. That's definitely something that you want to own. Well, Peter, it's been enjoyable chatting with you. Before you leave, where can listeners find your book? So um, they can go to thegreatsilverbull.com. Uh, I, we're targeting May 2nd for release. And uh, I'd like to just pull up um, the, the cover of the book. We can show uh, readers what that looks like. So here you go. That's The Great Silver Bull. As I say, Amazon, or you can go to thegreatsilverbull.com uh, to, to keep track of uh, any developments with the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, I encourage people obviously to, to go in and have a look. I think that, uh, I've, I like to think I've put something really unique together in terms of the opportunity in silver and how to uh, take advantage of, uh, of that opportunity in the silver space. And I will put links to Peter's website, his subscription service, and where you can find the book in the show notes below. So just click below to find more information. Peter, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insights today. Bill, it's been a tremendous pleasure and uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.